Authors on the Air with Terry Shepard, award-winning broadcaster, narrator, and author of the Jessica Ramirez Thrillers. Brought to you by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Thanks, Lisa. John Dedekis has lived a life with twists and turns worthy of his celebrated prose. He's been a journalist, an actor, a news director, and an award-winning member of the CNN team during the height of the cable network's popularity. He was a correspondent for the American Forces Network in Germany, has known the smell of tear gas while covering protest marches, and is a husband and father who reinvented himself as a novelist, writing coach, and manuscript editor. John has created five mystery suspense thrillers with a long list of accolades and thousands of fans, and has a wide podcast following as host of One to One with John Dedekis. It is said that life imitates art. How much of John Dedekis is in your star character, Lark Chadwick? Quite a bit. Um, I write as a woman, but I discovered when I started writing as a woman that emotions are not gender specific. So all of my emotions are in Lark Chadwick, my protagonist. And a lot of her shortcomings are too. She's impulsive. She's got anger issues. Uh, I'd like to think that a lot of that is under control in my life now, but, uh, you know, Lark for Lark, it's still a struggle and a learning experience. Um, but I think any writer will tell you that there is a lot of themselves, not only in their protagonist, but probably in their villains and just about every character they create. There's, there's some of them in there too. Men who write as women are often accused of getting it wrong or expropriating the gender. Has that happened to you? It really hasn't. And it's been a surprise. Um, my agent is a woman. My beta readers have been women. And there was one reviewer who said, I think it was when Troubled Water came out, my third novel. She said, ah, a man writing as a woman. I can't wait to take this guy apart. And she said after the fifth page, she forgot I was a man. And so she's been very generous in her reviews of the, you know, the, the novels that I've written. And, um, you know, every now and then there's someone who says, yeah, I can tell you're a man writing as a woman. And that's fine because I am. Um, but more often than not, the feedback I get from women is you nailed it. And, uh, you know, how did you, one woman actually said, how did you get in my head? The highest compliment a writer can get. It really is. It's, it's as I say, it's a, a pleasant surprise. What made you choose that character to be the star of your show? Lark, is, I don't know where I got the name Lark. Uh, I'll have to go back in my journals and try to figure that out. But Chadwick is Chadwick, Illinois, where I witnessed a car train collision when I was nine years old. And uh, the crash killed everybody in the car, three people. And so when I was making the transition from nonfiction journalism to fiction, I was doing a writing exercise about something that had happened in my life. And I was recounting a just the facts recitation of this car train collision. And this sort of also talks about the power of the subconscious, because as I was just writing down the story, I remembered 40 years later, a radio news report that happened a week after the accident that I witnessed about a car train collision in which an infant survived. And I began to do what if, 
What if that kid grew up and wanted to find out more about her past? And that is, in essence, how Lark got started in Fast Track, which is the first novel where she's investigating, you know, the car accident that orphaned her as an infant. How do you advise your students to make that transition from facts to fiction? It's not as difficult as one might think. The hardest part was to, because accuracy is job one in journalism, unlike what some presidents will tell you. It's a, it's a firing offense to make things up, which then meant that it was very difficult for me to give myself permission to go beyond the facts or embellish. And so the advice I give is just keep doing what you're doing. Because even if you're a technical writer or a journalist, you already know how to write clearly. And I think that's the essence of writing fiction as well. I think a lot of people, when they make the transition, feel as if they've got to be fancy or writerly. No, just be you. Be as clear and concise as you can, and the rest will take care of itself. John Dedakis is our guest. His website is johndedakis.com, a very easy .com to grab, isn't it? You don't have to worry about arguing with somebody else who has that name. Well, that's true. Although Dedakis is one of those tricky names. It's like Dewatis. So I'll spell it. It's uh, it's Greek. My dad was born uh, uh, in Greece near Corinth and came over to the U.S. when he was six. There was a typo in the Chicago phone book in 1913. So D-E-D became D-E capital D-A-K-I-S because uh, my grandpa said, well, that's cool. So whatever the Greek equivalent of cool is. And uh, and so our strand of Dedekai is uh, D-E capital D. And it's D as in dog, E, D as in dog, A-K-I-S as in Sam, Dedekis. My Take my- us through... I was just going to say, my 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 first sergeant in the army when I was at, uh, I think it was Third Armored Division in Germany, um, said, you know, he called me Dudekai. And I said, it's Dedekis. And he said, that's what I said, Dudekai. So, <laughs> so the good thing is, I know who I am. Take us through the evolution of your series from Fast Track to Bullet in the Chamber. Well, let's see. Fast Track is first, so I think I'll go chronological. Fast Track is the very beginning, and um, the Lark's backstory, just quickly, is that she's an English major at the University of Wisconsin. She is sexually assaulted by her uh, English professor, and that trauma really causes her to drop out of college just a few credits short of her getting her degree. And so the book begins when she's a waitress or a server, as they say now. She's trying to get her novel published. She's just getting rejection after rejection. She is living with her aunt uh, who raised her from infancy because Lark's parents were killed in a car accident. And so the very first scene is Lark getting home after getting another one of these rejections and finds her aunt dead in the doorway, uh, carbon monoxide poisoning, uh, an apparent suicide. And that's traumatic. This is, you know, Lark's basically mother figure. And now she's like an orphan. And, um, an Episcopal priest who is a friend and also the chaplain for the county sheriff's department is on the scene and, you know, helps get her righted and suggests that she try to find out more about her past. Uh, 
And so she goes to the small town in southern Wisconsin where the accident happened that orphaned her. She gets a newspaper clipping, discovers to her astonishment that she's the miracle baby who survived a car train collision. But no one had ever told her. And so she's wondering, well, what were they covering up? So she convinces the newspaper publisher who Lionel Stone, who's a former New York Times editor, Pulitzer Prize winner, um, she, but he's retired to his hometown to run the, the weekly paper. She convinces him to let her do a follow-up story about the car train collision, you know, and the miracle baby. So two of her sources are the mayor and the sheriff. They're running against each other for Congress. The election is one in one week, and each guy has a secret that will unravel the mystery. And so that then launches her career in journalism. Lionel hires her as, a, as his star reporter, his only reporter. And, um, and so she then in the next book, Bluff, she helps him solve the mystery surrounding the death of his daughter in a mountain climbing accident along the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu in Peru. So I hiked the Inca Trail to do research. And uh, so that was Bluff. Then the third novel, Troubled Water, Lark is in a sense kicked out of the nest. He said, you know, you're, you, you need to fly. And so he make, he has connections and he connects her to this kick-ass newspaper, uh, daily newspaper in Georgia, which is sort of a feeder for the New York Times. And so a lot of reporters get their chops there and then they go to the big time. So she's being groomed for something bigger, but the newspaper's in trouble. But And on the way to the job as the cops and courts reporter, she discovers the body of a girl, young girl who's strangled. And so Lark has the inside track on this big story, which is turns out to be the first victim of a serial killer. And so she's working that story, obviously solves it. And uh, the next book, Bill, Bullet in the Chamber, she's a White House correspondent for the Associated Press. And um, I covered the White House for the last three years of Reagan, but that was before cell phones and the Internet. And uh, and so Lark is um, and basically Lionel also covered the White House. So, again, he's her mentor. And um, this book, I don't need to go into a lot of detail about it now, but I write from personal experience. And so a lot of the subplot surrounds the disappearance and death of my youngest son, Stephen, of a heroin overdose 11 years ago or almost 12 years ago now. And so that is sort of baked into Bullet in the Chamber. And then my most recent novel, Fake, came out in 2019. Lark is still a White House correspondent and she's the victim of fake news. Where have you ever heard that term before? Two of your books have been released with updated editions. Why and what's different? Um, I was first published in 2005 by Arca Books, A-R-C-H-E Books. Uh, uh, both Fast Track and Bluff were published uh, first in hardcover, and uh, and then they came out in paperback. And uh, Arca Books, this was you know a long time ago, and it was I think one of the very first indie publishers that did. Um, print on demand. Um, and it was a great uh, business model because most of the big publishers have had problems because of all the warehousing that they have to do. You know, they'll do a big print run and then they can't sell them all. And they're stuck with all these books and warehouses with print on demand. It's, you know, the only time a book is printed is when it's ordered. And so 
But the problem was that a lot of uh, bookstores thought, oh, print on demand, that's self-published. No, it wasn't. Um, but the ARCA books went out of business in 2020 at the beginning of COVID. And almost the same week, uh, someone, the uh, Kurt Muller from uh, uh, Speaking Volumes reached out to me and said, are you looking for a publisher? I think he thought it was self-published. And um, as it turns out, yes, I uh, I needed, you know, a new publisher. And so Bluff and Fast Track were reissued in 2021. And really, we didn't have to do many changes. I mean, there were a couple of typos I had to correct. And, and there were, there was one, there was a, 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 a district judge in DC who caught a legal issue and, and made a suggestion. And so I reordered a couple of things and made it a little more legally accurate. But, um, for the most part, you know, those two books, I think survive. And, you know, they have new covers, better covers than I think I had. And um, so, yeah, they, they got reissued, but in a good way. You seem to me, John, to be a Renaissance man who sees opportunity and goes for it. The writing craft tends to attract introverts with unworthiness genes. How is it that you're able to overcome your fear and do it anyway? That's an excellent Excellent question. I'm actually, I'm an extrovert. I'm a shy extrovert with introvert tendencies. And I would say that for most of my career, fear was um, a motivating or a, a, a crippling thing. Um, I did. I'm, I was going to go to law school and go into practice with my dad and then go into politics. And the reason I didn't go to law school is I was afraid I wasn't smart enough and that I would, I would wash out. And so journalism was a good fit for me. My parents thought I joined the dark side because the press ran Nixon out of the White House. Um, but it, it's been a good fit. But uh, I actually teach a class now on overcoming your writing fears. And I, and I think <clears throat> there's, there's a lot wrapped up in your question. And I, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to, I'm going to get to all of the, the strands, but the thing that I've discovered about fear is that fear exaggerates and it tells you things that are going to be awful and it screams at you, you know, you're suck, you're going to fail and you're going to be judged. And yeah, you are, but it's not nearly as bad as we fear. And the more you face your fears, the more confidence you get because you discover, well, that wasn't so bad. And um, uh, probably there, I gave a speech in Denver a couple of uh, years ago at a, at a writer's conference on fear. And one of, the one of the questions was, what frightens you now? And it was a great question. And of course, my immediate quip was questions like that. But the, the actual answer is, it's almost counterintuitive. The, um, I think we fear the most, we fear death or the death of a loved one. And when my son died, I mean, it doesn't get much worse than that. And so I went through grief counseling. I faced my fears. We, our society anesthetizes the pain. But I think that the road to mental health and I think the road to good writing is to face your fears, mine your fears, go there, face the pain. And so I came through that. And now everything 
that could be frightening pales in comparison to what I've already experienced. So I think that that helps that's helped give me a lot more confidence. That's a long answer. And if there's a follow-up in there, please, because I don't know if I answered your question at all. So in some sense, writing for you is therapy. Oh, in a big sense. Um, I journal like a fiend. I have since I was probably 12. Um, it's evolved over the years. Um, Brett Kavanaugh and I are journalers. Uh <clears throat> Only my in my journal is probably not going to show up in a in a judiciary committee hearing, um, but journaling is definitely therapeutic, and is as is writing. And so writing, I mean, my first book, Fast Track, you know, the very first scene is my sister's suicide, carbon monoxide poisoning. I was on the scene, and so I wrote that scene as a catharsis. Um, yes, it's 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 therapeutic, and it's it it helps you face yourself and get to know yourself we're having a fascinating conversation with renaissance man and author john dedakis john com is his website how did you become a teacher i guess i stumbled into it because my mom taught third grade and she was definitely a teacher i mean growing up with her was like every moment was a teachable moment you know, she had some of these great things. Like she would say, it's not the IQ, it's the I will. Uh, and that was very practical. Um, you know, when my sister fell in love at 16 and got pregnant at 17 and married at 18, um, you know, she would say, if it's love, it'll last. You know, when I went into journalism, even though I joined the dark side, she said, if I hear in your reporting any bias, even if it's something I agree with, you failed. Just give me the facts and let me make up my own mind. So I would say that my mom was the inspiration without her even intending for me to be a teacher. But I, I saw it lived in the way she interacted with people. It was Life was a teachable moment and she was able to boil it down to nuggets that were usable. And so... I guess that I, I learned a lot of, I made a lot of mistakes when I wrote my first novel, but I was able to deconstruct what I was doing right and wrong. And so that in essence is what I end up doing in my writing workshops is here's how you do it. And I just break it down. And, uh, and my wife is a teacher. She taught uh, public school music for a while. And, you know, I've learned from her because there's no one way to teach. You need to read the room. You know, if a kid doesn't get it one way, you need to come at it a different way. It's on you, the teacher, to recognize, you know, what isn't getting through. And my mom had, you know, you know, the lesson plan. My mom had a, an, a lesson plan for every individual kid. So that's 25 lesson plans tailored to each kid. All books are community birthed. And there are a number of people that are involved after you've created them. Tell us about your team. It, it evolves. And I, I really feel that you need to be team one. Um, I think people join writers groups prematurely. 
I've got a friend in Florida who's been writing the same novel for 15 years because she'll take a chapter to a writer's group and they'll go, oh, ick, change it. So she does and they'll go, well, that's not what we meant. And she's driven and tossed by everybody else's opinions until she's had a chance to work it all the way through. So I think, I think one thing is you need to trust yourself to try and get it as good as you can make it with the understanding there are going to be weak spots and it takes a village. It really, you know, people can see things, they can see where you're blind in some areas. And so um, other bit of advice is if you're going to get a beta reader, best to get someone with whom you don't share a bed or a last name. Um, often those are the people who are either going to be so uh, uplifting that they're no practical good. They're like, oh, it's great. It's going to be a movie. Wonderful. You need to hear that. But what you really need is someone who's going to tell you the truth. Now, if it's your spouse, the danger is they're going to break your spirit. You know, you have no business writing this or, you know, don't embarrass the family or, you know, whatever. And uh, uh, I mean, Cindy was, uh, Cindy was one of my first beta readers and my book was like a 150,000 word mishmash. And she, she, uh, she read it. And she underlined one word. She said, you sure you want to use that word? <laughs> I'm great. She was right. I could have changed that word, but there were a hundred and, you know, 449,000, you know, other words that needed uh, addressing. But she said, I didn't know if you were any good. I didn't want to break your spirit. Now, Cindy was, has been very helpful. Like in fast, in fake, she helped bring that one in for a safe landing. Um, so, and my daughter, Emily is a, she's a PhD in creative writing. She was one of my first editors and she's got this spunky, sassy sense of humor. And this was when I printed out the novel, gave it to her. And she wrote in the margin, she underlined a word and she said, S-E-W is for needle and thread. S-O-W is for seed, Mr. Copy Editor. <laughs> so she was really helpful. Um, and then it's just a matter of finding people who know you're writing a novel and they're interested in reading it. And you say, well, you know, would you give me some feedback? And so it's the, and I've had several beta readers over the years. Some are repeats because they've been so good. And, you know, some have just said, yeah, it's really good. Well, okay, great. Thank you. But it's the ones who go, why did you use this? Or what about this? Or this, this doesn't make sense. And they're not fixing it for you, but they're pointing out where they're not tracking it and what it where it doesn't work. Um, my uh, agent Barbara Casey is a, is an editor too. Um, I had to rework Bluff uh, in a major way because I made a, a, a mistake, which required something that I had done as a flashback. She said, "No, this has got to be present day because you write first person," and so I had to take scenes that were flashbacks and find a way to make them you know, resonate in the here and now. Um, so that was a tough, tough rewrite. Um, I'm giving you a long answer, Terry. There are a lot of people. Um, writing writing conferences have been uh, uh, tremendously beneficial uh, because you, uh, I mean, if you're a shy person, they can be daunting places because they're so overwhelming. But you find that they're kindred spirits here. There are people who are writing just like you are, and they're trying to figure it out. Some are farther along than others. And so you learn about craft, you learn about the business, uh, you network, you make friends. I mean, that's where we met. And, um, and, and so 
it's it it's it's a it's a host of people who are uh, uh, encouragers and instructors and friends who contribute to the process. It's not as lonely as it was in the beginning. How did you and Barbara find one another? This shows how much of a slow learner I am. Um, I used to, I lived in Atlanta working at CNN at the time, and there was this great writers' conference, uh, the Harriet Austin Writers' Conference at the University of Georgia in Athens. Uh, Harriet Austin was a uh, uh, Harriet. Yeah, Harriet uh, was a um, an English professor at uh, uh, the university. Uh, the conference is defunct now, but I went every year for like seven or eight years. Emily went with me once and, um, but it was, it was intimidating and I would, you know, I'd carry my tome with me and, you know, no one wanted it. And it was before you really had pitch sessions with, uh, with agents. And I finally realized probably after about six or seven years, I, I knew who the agents were, who were going to be there. And so I pitched them ahead of time. And Barbara was one and a couple of others. And I said, this is who I am. This is what I've written. I'm going to be at this conference, looking forward to meeting you. And that cinched the deal. I met Barbara. I met another agent. They were both interested. Um, and Barbara just, you know, the other agent wanted me to try third person. She still didn't really like it. Barbara said, I'd still like first person. And we've been together since 2005. We're visiting with John Dedakis on the program. You have two books in the works. Which one do you think you'll finish first? Well, one book is uh, is my memoir, and I have finished that. It's in the fourth draft now, but now it's 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 an existential moment because my beta readers are my two children and my wife, and so you know I'm not necessarily giving them veto power, but their influence is going to be tremendously important. And uh, and the and the working title is what Alfred Hitchcock told me and more: a life of plot twists, because it's I'm hoping that it's going to be a cautionary tale and a teachable moment where I'm able to describe some of the pivotal moments in my life. And so Cindy is, she's more of an introvert. So uh, I think she's uncomfortable with the principle of the thing. So we're going over it together. She's very good. She's catching a lot of gut stuff, making it better, but I'm not out of the woods with her yet. Um, the other one I'm writing book six in the Lark Chadwick series uh, Lark in this book. Well, I don't want to give any of it away. She's been a white house correspondent. She's basically friends with the president. Um, and there's talk that they're having an affair. Uh, we, as the reader know that it's not true, but we also know there's mutual attraction. Um, so, uh, the, the working title of book six is enemies domestic. And so, uh, I'm in procrastination mode now. It's a thing. Now we come to the two questions I ask every guest. In your view, what are the components of a great story? I think that relationships are the essence of life. And I think good storytelling reflects life. And so um, plot is what happens. But what happens usually derives from relationships. Someone does something and someone reacts to it. 
and it starts a chain reaction. That's life. That's storytelling. And so I think what makes a good story is when you've got characters who, when the book is over, your reader will go, oh, I wonder what's happening with Lark. I miss her. I had one woman text me at two in the morning. I need another Lark fix. <laughs> so I think, I think that's it. Storytelling um, and, and, and relationships. How do you define success? I'm glad you asked that question because I, f I do not believe success is measured financially or in terms of how many people know who you are. In fact, uh, what I know about fame and wealth is that can be a major, major burden uh, because a lot of things are out of your control. And for me, for me, I'm successful right now because I'm doing what I love. Um, I get to pretty much uh, um, control my time and do what I want to do. I'm with the woman I love. We have a great relationship and um, that's success. It's that peace that passes all understanding and you can't buy that. JohnDedegas.com is the website. How else can people interact with you? Probably through my website, there's a, there's a portal where you can reach me by web, by uh, email. And that's my preferred uh, way of dealing with people. So again, the website is johndedakis.com. The last name is D as in dog, E, D as in dog, A, K, I, S as in Sam. A fascinating conversation, John. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. You ask great questions, and I'm glad we met. Authors on the Air with Terry Shepard is a copyrighted presentation of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm Lisa Davis. Join Terry in the next chapter for Authors on the Air. Mm -hmm.